Hi, folks. Michael Isikoff here. As we mentioned on the pod the other day, we're making available a special bonus for Skullduggery listeners. All three episodes of the most recent series of my Conspiracyland podcast, The Strange Story of Havana Syndrome. It's a pretty surprising account of a phenomenon that has confounded U.S. intelligence and diplomatic officials for years now, a medical mystery that has been used or arguably misused for political purposes. I'm pretty psyched about it, and if you get into it, feel free to subscribe to Conspiracyland and get three additional bonus episodes. I hope you enjoy the listen. When I was in Havana, there was a, a syndrome that we <laughs> we could call it the Kubalse syndrome. Fulton Armstrong is a former CIA analyst who served in Cuba in the late 1980s and early 1990s. At the time, of course, there was no U.S. embassy in Havana. So he and a small contingent of diplomats and intelligence officers worked out of the U.S. interest section in the Swiss embassy. While there, some of his colleagues came to believe their food supply was contaminated. We were required by U.S. regulations to purchase food only in the government-operated diplomatic stores. And it's true that sometimes the food had sort of this stink to it, and we called it sabor a cubalse, the flavor, the taste of, uh, of cubalse, which is the company that ran these, these grocery stores. A conspiracy theory soon took root. There was a nefarious plot afoot by Cuban intelligence to harm U.S. officials, to make them sick, or possibly even worse. Back then, the interest section were convinced that the Cubans were poisoning us. People were suffering from incredible symptoms and reporting these symptoms and tracking them and, and all of that. This was around also the same time that some of our children at the international school uh, came down with mysterious stomach disorders and as, oh, the Cubans are poisoning us and stuff like that. For the children, it turned out to be Giardia, one or two pills, and they were back on their feet and off the toilet. As for the smelly food at the Cabalse grocery stores, the idea that it might be deliberate food poisoning seemed to get traction by the mere suggestion that it might be happening. We had to, send, to convince people that, no, they're not trying to poison us, that we, we had to send samples of all kinds of different foods in all different states, frozen, unfrozen stuff, through approved labs, through approved phytosanitary processes. We were the, we were the U.S. government at the time. And with this lab reports come back to say, no, this is, these, these are safe. There are no untoward substances in it, et cetera. And within a week, the symptoms went away. When you're in a closed situation, especially one where you are looking inward, not outward, these things can gather a lot of momentum. In his 30-year-long career in the intelligence community, Armstrong lived through a lot of false claims made by U.S. officials, usually for politically driven reasons. There was, most notoriously, the debacle over the Bush administration's assertions about Iraqi WMD, credulously amplified in some quarters of the U.S. news media. And Armstrong himself became a target when then-Undersecretary of State John Bolton later one of Donald Trump's four national security advisors, tried to get him fired as a national intelligence officer for Latin America. The reason? Armstrong had dissented from Bolton's dubious claims that the Cubans had developed their own biological weapons program. 
And today, Armstrong sees a parallel between those episodes and the more recent claims by some in government and Congress that a super-secret microwave weapon is responsible for the range of debilitating health effects suffered by U.S. intelligence officers and diplomats, commonly known as Havana Syndrome. That the name Havana is still tied to it is obviously a political endeavor perpetrated by people who want to keep Havana in a doghouse for something in which it had no role and couldn't possibly have had any role because as we discuss this, I think we'll see that, that there's no such weapon, there's no such operation, there's, there's no evidence for any of these bizarre scenarios that people have been milking now. No one is ever going to be able to say these people's symptoms were exaggerated, fabricated. No one would ever say that. That would be rude. It would be unscientific. It would be unanalytical. It would be wrong to say that, that people never got hurt. But there are a lot of situations in which you could have you could have a variety of different causes or you could have a coincidence of different causes that somebody would have symptoms. OK, so the explanation that you're referring to is the idea that this was a an attack by a foreign power against American diplomats from day one. That's what the U.S. government's allegation was, for which there's not a shred of evidence. You're saying it's a hoax. Hoax, hoax sounds like somebody, including the victims, the, the, the people suffering from these symptoms, had cooked it up. I'm not sure that's the case. But when it came up to Washington, it certainly looks like someone saw, hey, here's a really good opportunity. By which he means a really good opportunity to disrupt relations with Cuba. Armstrong has been saying all this about Havana Syndrome almost from the start. But until recently, he was something of an outlier on the issue. And his arguments tended to be dismissed, in part because he was seen as somebody a bit too sympathetic to the Cubans. But it turns out, Armstrong may have been onto something all along. I'm Michael Isikoff, the host of Conspiracy Land. The more I've dug into this issue and the more evidence has come out, the more it has become clear that there are reasons to be doubtful, to say the least, about much that has been reported about Havana Syndrome. Is there really a super-secret weapon that has been inflicting harm on U.S. officials that nobody has ever seen, and which the finest scientists in the Pentagon are unable to replicate? Could such a weapon really have been fired at diplomats and intelligence officers all over the world without anybody noticing anything? Phantom attacks from a phantom weapon? Even as media reports have gotten ever more sensational, with wild claims just this year about presumed foreign agents zapping officials on the grounds of the White House or inside their homes in Washington, D.C., I've learned that U.S. intelligence officials have only grown more skeptical that any hostile attack has taken place at all. The real story of Havana Syndrome, it turns out, may be very different than what you've been told or heard until now. A case study, as it were, of how conspiracy theories still get traction in today's political and media landscape, even among otherwise sober-minded people. This is episode three. It's not what we thought it was. To start off, let's roll back the clock to when all this began. 
Tonight, the State Department ordering most of the American staff at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba home. The rare move in response to mysterious attacks against 21 U.S. diplomats. Tillerson tonight describing their injuries. Hearing loss, dizziness, headache, fatigue, cognitive issues and difficulty sleeping. The FBI and CIA in Havana now investigating what experts are calling targeted attacks from small sonic devices. It was from reports like these in 2017 that the world first learned about the phenomenon known as Havana Syndrome. Jeffrey Thale, then the president of the Washington Office on Latin America, a human rights group that had backed President Obama's opening to Cuba, had that year arranged for a congressional delegation to visit Cuba where the subject first came up. And Cuban President Raul Castro adamantly denied to the U.S. ambassador that Cuba was complicit in attacks on U.S. diplomats. And it's shortly after that that we, my office, uh, I and one other person in my office, were contacted by at least one, possibly two U.S. diplomats stationed in Havana who said, we're very concerned about this. We think what we're doing in Cuba is important. We don't think our embassy should be shut down. We think that the U.S. government is overreacting. And one person said to us, I think that some of these attacks were targeted at CIA officials. And I think they're encouraging other people to also report themselves as having been affected. Thale says the diplomats asked his office to set up meetings with members of Congress and their staff to express their concerns. Clearly, you know, they were not authorized to do this in any sense at all. This was them privately and in their personal role. They asked to talk to people on Capitol Hill, congressional offices interested in maintaining more or less normal U.S. human relations and share their perspective, which was, while there are, you know, real things to be concerned about here, this shouldn't be exaggerated and shouldn't be used as an excuse or a vehicle for shutting down our embassy. At the time, I think their view was some people have had some symptoms, yes, but their view was they're all CIA agents, and they are trying to involve other people and exaggerate, distort, increase the significance of these events and bring other people into them to make it look like more of a concerted, more like a a conscious targeted effort on the part of presumably the Cuban government. Toward the end of 2017, we facilitated some of those meetings. One of the members who Thale arranged for these embassy officials to brief was Jim McGovern, a senior Democrat from Massachusetts and now chairman of the House Rules Committee. That initial meeting who I talked to who were at the embassy, um, who said that, uh, you know, they didn't believe that this was a deliberate attack by the Cuban government against diplomats. In fact, they were raising the issue that, you know, it might be something other than a an attack. It could be a virus or it could be, you know, some sort of other factor that may have uh, impacted uh, some of the embassy personnel. And then some of them said that they, you know, as the word got out about this, that, you know, the mere suggestion that you may have been exposed to something, you know, had some people at the embassy saying, well, you know, maybe I have it. You know, I haven't been as sharp. I haven't, you know, I felt dizzy. You know, I wasn't feeling well at some point. Maybe I too was a victim. And I'm not saying this to try to minimize any of the um, concerns that embassy personnel had at the time. When this first came to to light, I think, you know, it was appropriate for the U.S. government to be concerned and to try to follow up as to, you know, what really happened here. And again, I had many, I, I had briefings, you know, by our intelligence services and by people in the Department of Defense and people in the State Department about 
you know, what they thought happened in the months and years after that. And nobody ever really had any kind of conclusion <laughs> about what happened. That if it was a weapon, it was something we never heard of before. We couldn't even imagine what it would look like to be able to do this. I would ask them, tell me what kind of weapon could do this. Because in some cases, you know, there might have been multiple people in the same building or in the same room, but only one person would be affected. How does that work? You know, and um, I see there must be some sort of James Bond type of weapon that I don't know about that that could do this. And nobody knew of any such weapon or any such device. As McGovern saw it, the idea that the Cubans may have launched or somehow been complicit in a hostile attack against U.S. officials seemed illogical on its face. But what always kind of struck me was that nobody seemed to want to ask the question, if you really believe the Cubans would do something like this, why would they do it? Why would they do it after they fought so hard to try to improve relations between our two countries? They were they welcomed President Obama. I, w- I went with President Obama to to Cuba uh, when he went there. I was with John Kerry when he went as well. I mean, they were really genuinely excited about this new day. And, um, you know, why would they all of a sudden just do something like this, which uh, would certainly undermine better relations between our two countries? It just didn't make a lot of sense. And the response you get, well, you know, there may be two sectors within the Cuban government. There may be the Cuban government that wants better relations. And then there may be the hardliners that are trying to undercut that. I mean, you know, you try to follow the logic of those who wanted to believe that this was something deliberately done by the Cuban government. It was like you get into all these conspiracy theories. That wasn't the only red flag that something was off about the Havana Syndrome narrative. Start with one of the very first stories about it from the Associated Press. The news organization reported, as we told you about in episode one, that some of those hit by the supposed attacks reported hearing the sounds of Cuban cicadas or crickets, and then actually recorded them. Here's one of the AP reporters from 2017. The recording gives us the first tangible sense of what it was like for these American government workers in Havana who were hearing these unexplained sounds in their residences and later developed physical symptoms. The U.S. Embassy in Havana has played these recordings for Americans who are working there so they know what to listen to. Only there was a small problem with these reports of recorded cicada chirpings that supposedly demonstrated what U.S. officials said they were hearing. A scientist in the 1960s named Alan Frey had first documented that microwaves could trigger the perception of sound inside a person's head. Only it's just that, the perception of sound, not real sound, according to Kenneth Foster, a professor emeritus of bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania, who has studied the Havana syndrome phenomenon. Okay, back in the 60s, people were looking for biological effects of microwaves and couldn't find much. But there was a strange phenomenon that some people would hear things when their heads were in radar beams, which put out short pulses of rather intense microwaves. But while people thought they were hearing something, there was no actual sound. Yes, the only thing I think of is that nobody had any better explanation. And some people who appeared to be victims had reported strange sounds associated with what they thought were their attacks. And so someone put one and one together and came up with six. That was how this um, right. fly effect explanation first occurred. It okay. doesn't make any sense. Why not? Well, the fly effect occurs because sounds were generated inside the head 
through a simple, rather trivial physical process. And you can't have someone reporting sounds from outside the body. And as it turned out, those sounds were probably unrelated to whatever happened to them during these, these, these incidents. It is really unfortunate that that happened because that has been used by the naysayers to show that, see, these people are all crazy. That's Mark Zaid. He's a veteran national security lawyer whose many clients include Mike Beck, the NSA counter-intel officer we told you about in the last episode, who experienced what he thought was a microwave attack in Russia in the 1990s. And full disclosure, Zaid has even represented me in Freedom of Information Act lawsuits seeking to dislodge government secrets. Ever since the reports of Havana Syndrome emerged five years ago, Zaid has become the go-to lawyer for government officials who believe they were struck by something and wanted answers. But even he acknowledges the recordings of cicada or cricket chirpings were not especially helpful to his cause. His clients, he says... They really did hear those sounds because they really did hear crickets. You know, at the time, something was happening to them. But the crickets have nothing to do with, you know, whatever this is. Unless, of course, I guess some country got so advanced that they attached some sort of weapons, strapped them to the crickets like passenger pigeons or something. Right. Back, uh, I saw right. something the other day where they were pat where pigeons were actually used, were, were designed to be used yeah. as bombs in world well, when War you II. say when you say it was in for, unfortunate you're talking about the recording of the recording the recording has nothing to do with what these incidents are it was total coincidence that at a point in time where however a number of people recorded things one or two i guess that whatever they were experiencing they happened to also hear crickets and they turned their phone on or something Yet Zaid is convinced that something damaging caused by an outside hostile force did hit his clients. I will say, I also, I am, I am now, I, w- I will not reveal what I know, but I'm privy to classified information regarding this situation now because of some of my clients. And I will tell you that the best way I would describe this story of AHI, UHI is like Titanic and the iceberg, right? You only see about a third of the iceberg above the water. That's what this story is all about. Two-thirds of the story is submerged that people do not see yet. The problem is that, as Zaid admits, he doesn't know what that iceberg even looks like. But his best guess, he says, is that his clients were struck deliberately by a weapon that grew out of some sort of microwave surveillance device. Not unlike the Great Seal of the United States we told you about in the last episode, the ornament that was given to the U.S. ambassador in Moscow after the end of World War II with a secret bug hidden inside. What are we talking about here? So my gut instinct based on 30 years of working in and around the Intel world. And what I've studied about this is I believe that it evolved out of surveillance technology. Now, clearly, whatever this is, at some point in time, it has reached a weaponized status. And by that, I mean, you know, anything can be used as a weapon, right? If I pick up the coffee mug on my desk. It's designed to drink hot liquids. But if I smash you over the head with it, I've weaponized it. It's clear this technology has a harmful impact on human beings and and animals. And there have been animals that, that have been hit. So it's so public now that whoever is doing this is clearly doing it 
either just disregarding the impact that it has on health or for the purposes of harming people. But look, we don't know, right? We, we haven't captured an intelligence officer from an adversary doing it that we know of. We haven't captured a device that was used for it that we know of. So to me, this is gross evidence of a cover-up by the U.S. government. And now I'm not saying that- Oh, wait a second. You just said we haven't captured a device. We haven't, as far as we know, had a foreign intelligence officer flip and describe this. So on what basis can you say that constitutes a cover-up? The cover-up is that I am one- I know for a fact, because I have had access to classified information, that there's a lot of information that's not being publicly revealed. And if you knew what it was, you would be very upset. I, I know that for a fact. I mean, that I have been privy to. Can't say what it is, unfortunately. So, you know, it really sucks. I'm saying something. I can't, I can't back it up. One of those assigned to investigate the Havana Syndrome, or AHI as the government calls it, and had access to all the intelligence Zaid is referring to was John Cohn. He's a veteran law enforcement and counterintelligence professional who, between July of 2021 and April of this year, served as acting undersecretary of intelligence and analysis at the Department of Homeland Security. He was assigned to work with the U.S. intelligence community on investigations into the mystery of Havana Syndrome. And the more he looked into the issue, the more skeptical he became. I was initially very convinced that this was some type of offensive operation by a foreign military uh, or intelligence organization. In my mind, there were just too many people who were experiencing these symptoms. But as I began to read the data, read the intelligence, read the results of the investigations and the assessment work that was being done around the world, it just became harder and harder to explain these these instances as an attack. There was just, you know, I never saw anything that was clear cut that provided not even an identification of who was doing it, but a definitive description or a definitive source for what was causing these symptoms. A lot of conjecture, a lot of speculation, a lot of knowledgeable speculation. But, you know, I'm, you know, as you know, I'm a law enforcement person. You know, I grew up in the dragnet era. You know, it's like Joe Friday said, it's just the facts. Show me the facts. And in this case, they never were able to, I never saw information or intelligence that was sufficient to provide clarity that caused a, that provided a direct connection between some type of offensive operation. Again, whether it's deployment of electromagnetic or microwave or chemical substances, and the very real symptoms that people were feeling and complaining about. The conflicting views within the U.S. government about the issue led to intense, sometimes heated clashes within the Biden administration. Yes, absolutely. In addition to there not being consensus, it actually became somewhat disruptive, where these two groups of people with different beliefs on this began to, to view each other with skepticism. Hmm. Explain that a little bit. What uh, what was going on? Well, you had some uh, in the U.S. government, you know, in the intelligence community and elsewhere, who felt very strongly that they had been targeted for attack and that they were suffering physically as a result of being exposed to some type of electromagnetic or microwave or some other 
capability that was being deployed by a foreign military and foreign intelligence service. On the other hand, you had others who said, we can't find any proof of that. And we are finding explanations or other explanations for why people are experiencing these these symptoms. And it almost became a, on, on one side of the issue, hey, you don't believe me, I'm telling you I was attacked. And on the other hand, you had people who are saying you weren't attacked. Why do you keep saying that? And, and that was sort of some of the some of the tension uh, that was beginning to develop within the workforce. When you say disruptive, how is it disruptive? When you have two groups of people divided uh, with by very strong beliefs that are counter to each other, uh, that can potentially undermine that that trust, which is critical to working in these types of intelligence or operational environments. So disruptive that U.S. counterintelligence officials even started investigating a theory that the whole phenomenon was, if not cooked up, then stoked by a disinformation campaign from a hostile foreign service seeking to create chaos within the U.S. intelligence community. No, just one of the investigative theories that were being pursued. All I'm saying is one of the things investigators considered is that, you know, if you you could potentially disrupt cohesion, operational cohesion within organizations, if you were able to convince people that they were under attack. But there was no, there was no sign that this had actually happened. We could, you, nobody tied. Yeah, that I saw. While Cohen was overseeing DHS's investigation into anonymous health incidents, 60 Minutes, the most watched news program on American television, last February aired a report that took the Havana Syndrome story to a whole new level. Since 2016, U.S. government officials overseas and their families have reported sudden, unexplained brain injuries. Incidents have been reported in Europe, Asia, and Latin America, but our reporting has found senior national security officials who say they were stricken in Washington and on the grounds of the White House. One of those officials was Olivia Troy, the Homeland Security Advisor to then-Vice President Mike Pence. She described walking down the outdoor steps of the old executive office building on the White House grounds and suddenly getting struck. It was like this piercing feeling on the side of my head. It was like, I remember it was on the right side of my head and I I got like vertigo. I was unsteady. I was, I felt nauseous. It was like a paralyzing panic attack. Another was Miles Taylor in 2018, the deputy chief of staff and later chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security. He described waking up in the middle of the night at his Capitol Hill apartment to weird sounds. It was sort of a chirping somewhere between what you would think is a cricket or sort of a digital sound. What was really strange about it is I went to the window, opened up my window, looked down at the street, and keep in mind, Scott, this is probably 3, 3.30 in the morning, and I see a white van, and the van's brake lights turned on, and it pulled off, and it sped away. And there were others who 60 Minutes said had reported similar experiences, including a reference to an unnamed cabinet secretary who I've learned was actually Kirsten Nielsen, Donald Trump's secretary of Homeland Security. And the 60 Minutes report ended with this creepy coda. The iron gates of West Executive Avenue by the West Wing went up in 1951 after the attempted assassination of Harry Truman. Seventy years later, there is evidence the gates may have been breached by an invisible threat. 
I've talked to Troy, Taylor, and Nielsen, and there's no reason to think any of them are making anything up or not accurately describing what they perceived as happening to them. Although I should add that Nielsen didn't want to comment at all, and Troy acknowledged to 60 Minutes that she didn't report anything about what happened to her at the time because she was embarrassed about it. But it was John Cohen's job to investigate whether there was evidence of anything like what 60 Minutes suggested these incidents were, a hostile attack from a foreign intelligence service. Did you see any hard evidence that such domestic attacks took place? No. Cohn tells me that efforts to get to the bottom of the accounts of domestic attacks were still ongoing at the time he left the government last spring, and no final conclusions had been reached. But he did talk about the wild improbability of the idea that unseen foreign agents were able to precisely track the minute-by-minute movements of a mid-level official on the grounds of the White House and then zap the target with some sort of microwave gun without anybody detecting anything. Yeah, I mean, as you know, the area in and around the White House, or referred to as a campus, there's a series of, of office buildings there. The security in that area is extraordinarily high, both from a physical perspective, you know, whether it's Secret Service officers or Metropolitan Police officers patrolling the streets. In those areas or in those buildings where there are not government offices, there is close coordination with the owners and operators of those buildings and the business owners regarding any activities that are going on in those buildings. There's uh, extensive security and sensor capabilities in and around that campus. If the concern was raised that someone walking out of the old EOB, the old executive office building, had been targeted with a weapon that required direct line of sight, I suspect that all of those surveillance or security countermeasures would have picked something up. Look, I can tell you, I've walked out of the White House before, hadn't had any water or drank too much coffee, and I would get dizzy or, you know, or feel a ringing in my ears. And it was not because I was targeted by any type of microwave. But if I had been, if I had consumed content for, you know, months or years that U.S. government personnel were being targeted, and maybe at some point they were being targeted, that would be something I would think about, um, about why I was feeling those symptoms. I might not attribute it to the fact that maybe I needed to drink more water, or maybe I needed to reduce stress in my life, or maybe I had some other underlying physical condition that was contributing to that. The power of suggestion. Yeah. One more bullet point on this. I asked the White House about the 60 Minutes report that officials on the White House grounds might have been targeted. A senior official would not discuss the accounts of any individuals, of course. But the official added, quote, we have no indication the White House was under threat. Six years later, do we know anything more about what caused these illnesses? That's NBC's Andrea Mitchell posing a question about Havana Syndrome to CIA Director William Burns at this summer's Aspen Security Forum. A few months ago, the intelligence community across the board, you know, made public some preliminary findings. The broadest was that we don't assess that a foreign player, whether Russians or anyone else, is behind or is responsible for a sustained global campaign on the scale of what has been reported to harm U.S. personnel with a weapon or some kind of external device. We further stated publicly several months ago that in the majority of incidents, and we've 
you know, investigated each one as thoroughly as we possibly can, and we're still working on a number of them, that, you know, you could find reasonable alternative explanations, whether it was other environmental factors or um, pre-existing medical conditions or other kind of medical explanations. Burns was walking a fine line in this response, trying to respect the concerns of his officers who are experiencing genuine medical problems, while ever so gently pouring cold water on the whole public narrative of how they came about. But I got some revealing details from sources familiar with the work of the agency's Global Health Incident Cell. That's the task force set up to investigate this matter, and headed by an undercover officer who had been a veteran of the search for Osama bin Laden. The sources I spoke to walked me through how the agency came up with its preliminary findings, which chalked up most reported anonymous health incidents to other factors, leaving two dozen still under investigation. The task force, quote, left no stone unturned, one of those sources said. The task force interviewed officials who reported complaints and, with consent, obtained their medical records. They also went into the field all over the world, where the purported attacks took place, tearing up walls and floorboards, looking for evidence of what might have happened. What they found was fascinating, but utterly pedestrian. In one case, in a Latin American country where an official reported hearing vibrating sound causing pain in the ears, task force investigators found that there had been blasting musical speakers that were bouncing off walls in the building where the official was located. In another incident, the task force discovered a faulty component in a high-volume air conditioning system. In yet another, a power charger plugged into malfunctioning wiring that resulted in electrical disturbances causing officials to feel pressures in the head and dizziness. One U.S. official had reported walking down the street in an overseas country and being hit by what was described as a beam of energy causing pain in the ears. The task force identified the likely cause, the use nearby of an ultrasonic pest repellent designed to keep away possums and other animals. And on it went. There is nothing that links these cases, one of the sources said. No patterns to what had happened, no rhyme, no reason to the targets. As for the bottom line conclusion, all of the task force's analysts were in agreement, the source said. Quote, we haven't found a foreign connection to anything yet. As we told you in the first two episodes, for years, the leading theory among U.S. intelligence officials who believed that Havana Syndrome was real was that the perpetrators behind the supposed attacks were agents of the Russian intelligence services under the firm control of Vladimir Putin. And yet, while health incidents afflicting American spies and diplomats have been reported all over the globe, in China, in Vietnam, in Thailand, in Austria, in Colombia, the U.S. officials I talked to said they were unaware of any reported attacks in the one country the Russians care about most, Ukraine. There are no known instances of U.S. diplomats in Ukraine experiencing Havana Syndrome symptoms in the run-up to this year's invasion, or, for that matter, among officials of the Ukrainian government, including the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who, as one former top U.S. official pointed out to me, would have been a considerably higher priority target for the Russians than the Homeland Security Advisor to the American Vice President. To be sure, there's nothing definitive here. That senior White House official I referred to earlier did say that some of the remaining two dozen cases are, quote, highly compelling. And he noted that one scientific report commissioned by the U.S. intelligence community concluded that some of the health problems reported among a small group of core cases could be explained by exposure to pulsed electromagnetic or microwave beams. 
even though no such weapon or system has ever been identified. And, as one official familiar with the report put it, significant information gaps exist. The scientists' findings might, in ways nobody yet understands, explain the disorienting experiences of people like Karen Coates, the HR assistant at the U.S. Embassy in Havana who you heard from in Episode 1 and who is still suffering cognitive issues five years after hearing loud, piercing sounds in her ears. We don't know. But as we wrap up, it's worth replaying another exchange from the first episode in this series, from the interview I had with Brian Nichols. He's the Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, responsible for U.S.-Cuba policy. And remember, it was reports of supposed attacks in Cuba that first caused the Trump administration to pull U.S. diplomats out of the embassy in Havana. So with regard to anomalous health incidents, you know, those who have studied them have not identified any outside causality with regard to anomalous health incidents. So... You have no evidence that the Cuban government was in any way involved. We have not identified any outside causality in any anomalous health incidents. I played those comments for Jeff Thale, the former director of the Washington Office on Latin America, who set up those initial briefings on Capitol Hill. So I just have to say that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's pretty amazing on a couple of levels here. One is he, he is very clear. We have no evidence that anything happened here. So not just no evidence that the Cuban government wasn't behind it, not just no evidence that Cuban intelligence wasn't covering it up, no evidence that anything happened. That's a really stunning reversal. I mean, we removed two thirds of our embassy staff because of these incidents to protect them. And maybe nothing happened. I, that's, that's just a stunning change. I also discussed Nichols' comments, as well as those by CIA Director Burns at the Aspen Forum, with Congressman McGovern. He's frustrated that the skepticism they expressed isn't getting more attention. Maybe part of the problem is that uh, people don't want to admit that, you know, they were got it wrong at the beginning. But, you know, we have to be, we have to be honest. I mean, right? And there's been so many conspiracy theories out there and and all those conspiracy theories have been proven to be wrong. And, and so, like, okay, I think we all seem to have concluded, according to the CIA director, you know, that it's not what we thought it was originally. Okay, good. Move on. Until somebody comes up with something different, we'll do just that. I'm Michael Isikoff. Thanks for listening. Conspiracy Land is a podcast production of Yahoo News. A huge thanks to producer Mark Seaman, who accompanied me to Cuba, taped all the interviews, and then edited these episodes with his customary professionalism. Hat tips also to Yahoo editor Will Ron, who offered editorial guidance, to Jack Forbes, who designed this season's Conspiracy Land logo, and Yahoo editor-in-chief Dan Kleidman, who oversaw the entire project.